Turn over with me to 1 John 3. 1 John 3, we'll look at 16 through 18 this morning. Let's pray. Father, may the testimony of your servant John, uh, inspired as it is by the Holy Spirit, be not mere words of wisdom to us this morning. Uh, may they be words of life applied to us by the same Spirit who inspired them. May we be nourished and strengthened in faith, not only to understand the truth of your word, but also to walk in its light. Help us to live as men and women who love one another in action from a heart of empathy, empathy and love. May we who have come to know love through the laying down of the life of our Savior Jesus Christ be enabled to lay down our own lives for our brothers. Help us, we pray, to overcome the sins of selfishness and self-love and to delight instead in the self-sacrificial love of others. We ask these things in the name of our Savior who sacrificed his, his life for ours. Amen. If you would stand for the reading of God's Word, 1 John 3. Again, we'll focus on 16 through 18, but we'll read beginning in verse 11 and going through 16. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Amen. You may be seated. You may have heard the story or read it of John G. Patton, a missionary to the New Hebrides, which is to the west, northwest of, of Australia, islands out in the middle of nowhere. He and his pregnant wife, Mary, left a, a relatively comfortable life in Scotland uh, to go to these islands and to minister to the gospel in these islands composed of, of, of cannibalistic tribes. Shortly after arriving there, his wife, John's wife, Mary, gave birth to their son. Shortly after that, she died, and shortly after that, his son died, and apparently he spent some nights sleeping on their graves to prevent them from being cannibalized. Despite the tragedy, he, he pressed on, despite many uh, oppositions and, and even attacks from the people on the islands, he pressed on. Uh, he returned eventually to Scotland remarried his new wife Maggie 
and took her back with him to the New Hebrides where they continued to labor. Um, four of their children dying in infancy of a total of ten. Um, they were just dealt with opposition, with, with limited resources, with disease. But ultimately the Lord blessed their work. The, the whole island they were on converted to Christianity. There were 25, I think, out of the 30 islands had a missionary on them. Um, and so the Lord blessed their work. And this is an amazing story of faithfulness and love for God's people. Uh, laying down one's life for others. Self-sacrifice. I don't want to take anything away from, from Patton or from, from any other amazing stories of self-sacrificial Christian love that we're familiar with. I have no doubt that these, these people were genuine in their motives and that the Lord really truly gave them an extraordinary gifting and calling to undertake this ministry that they, they did. Um, and indeed, these kinds of stories should inspire us, they should encourage us, they should challenge us. But there can be a problem. We can read stories like these and think, and really I think this is the narrative we hear a lot in the Western evangelical churches, to be a real Christian, to really prove yourself, you need to do something radical. And there's almost an agnostic element to this, isn't there? To be truly spiritual, you must try to attain to this higher class of Christianity. To really sacrifice yourself. And I don't think that this is far afield from the, the Gnostic situation in, in, that John was dealing with. Um, but what, what ends up happening when we have this kind of message preached to us? We begin to struggle, I think, with assurance of salvation. Well, I want to do those things, or at least I want to want to think I want to do those things someday. But I struggle. I struggle with my own life. I struggle with fear. I'm just never going to live up to those stories. And for some, and I've talked to many people like this, they question, do I really have the Holy Spirit? Do I really love God? And we've all had that feeling from time to time. And John does say, we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. There's no question that, that this, is, this is not something that should be viewed lightly or half-heartedly, laying down one's life. It is a serious call. But he also makes it clear in this passage, if we are ever going to lay our lives down in, in big ways, we first lay down our lives in small everyday way. Most importantly, I think, I, I think he, he, he's continuing to encourage the saints by reminding them, you, you don't chase after the big, flashy, sort of higher knowledge, higher living lies out there, that you, you can only be a real Christian if you attain to a certain level. Instead, he's saying, consider your own life. Is it not true that you sacrifice daily? perhaps in small but real and concrete ways. Little children, be, be certain then the love of God abides in you and press on in faith, whether big or small. Our passage is about love. 
and specifically love that confirms our fellowship that we possess with God. And this morning I'll draw out three points um, to that end about what John is saying about loving the brothers. And the first is that living love is life-giving. Living love is life-giving. And I call it living love because John is talking about a particular kind of love. Uh, this isn't mere altruism that springs from a desire to look good in, in front of men or, or to advance the progress of, of man's autonomous attempt to be good apart from God because we can love for those reasons. Instead, the love he's talking about is a living love, a love that springs from the new life that we have in Christ. And this new life or new birth is a major component of of the question that John has been dealing with in this broader section. Uh, and love, again, to reiterate, is not a way to gain entrance into fellowship with God. Rather, it is a marker of vivacious or lovely, uh, lively love or lively membership in the divine fellowship. If you have the divine fellowship, love will spring forth from that. John uses different terms for this in this broader passage. He says, God's love is abiding in us, verse 17. He says in verse 15, eternal life is abiding in us. Or in uh, chapter 2, verse 29, um, he, he speaks of us being born of God. The basic idea in theological terms is regeneration or new birth leading to faith in or union, in union with Christ, from which flows life-changing sanctification, in this case, the fruit of love for the brothers. So living love is, is the effect, not the cause, of living membership in the divine fellowship. If we back up to verse 11, we read, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. And then in verse 12, we should not be like Cain. Well, who should we be like? That's what John moves on next, is Jesus as the illustration. Cain was the illustration of hatred. Jesus, the ultimate illustration of love. In verse 16, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. I, I think there should be a colon after love. By this we know love that Jesus laid down his life for us? I think he's saying more than by this we can define love, although that's part of it, but rather the sense is we have come to know in an experiential way what love is because Jesus laid down his life for us. We have become intimate partakers of love. It is helpful in establishing a definition of biblical love, which is a a big topic and it's complex and there's many aspects of love. But I think this really is getting at the core of what love is. That love is self-sacrificial. As Paul says, love does not seek its own. This is why I say, I say that, that living love is life-giving. It imparts life, but it imparts life usually at some cost to the giver. 
It gives away some piece of, of life in order to impart life. And Jesus, of course, is the finest example or, or embodiment of love. The exalted creator, sustainer of the universe, the life-breathing, self-existent, worship from angels, receiving second person of the Godhead, emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, born in the likeness of men, humbling himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus said himself in John fifteen thirteen, Greater love has no man than this, than to lay down his life for his friends. And he did this for us, though we weren't his friends, but his enemies. This is extraordinary love and self-sacrifice. John says something very similar uh, to what he's saying here in the next chapter in, in 4, verse 10. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for us. See, this is love, the giving of life for life. Hate, hate like the hatred of Cain that we looked at last week, is murder. It's the opposite. It takes life. It's selfish. Love imparts life and it's costly. There's no love so costly that has ever been expended than the price paid for our salvation. All, all of the gems and the precious metals in every galaxy across the universe compiled together don't even compare to the cost and the love that was expended when Jesus became a man and, and died for us. Consider just for a moment, God is, unlike us, in no way depleted by an expenditure of love. He's the bottomless well of love. In the eternal divine triune fellowship, there existed perfect love and continues to exist perfect love, love between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, an infinite love that is both given and taken between persons. And this is the love, John says, that we've been brought into, the divine fellowship, by the the costly expenditure of the blood of Jesus. Peter said it this way, Know that you were ransomed not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. So living love is life-giving. Robert Yarborough says this, I think it was very helpful. He says, Love has profound theological underpinnings and a sublime exemplar in Christ. But God has sent love forth to be taken up, not admired at a distance. So there's an assumption here that not only has Jesus showed us what love is, but then if we have come to know love in a a personal experience way, that this that we, that we will reflect the same kind of love. 1 John 3.16, one of the great 3.16 passages, there are numerous of them, interestingly enough, 3.16, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our life for the brothers. That, that's the expectation. 
you want to turn there, Jesus gave a similar parable um, to this effect in Matthew 18. You can just listen as well. Matthew 18, 23 through 35. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payments to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. Seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported their, to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have mercy on your fellow servants as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This this parable and uh, and John's thinking in our passage as well is, is an argument from the great to the small. If you have been forgiven a great debt... What is a small debt? If you are in possession of the most priceless love ever bestowed, what is the expenditure of a small piece of your life in love for the brothers? If we know love, if we really know love, we will lay down our lives for our brothers. I think if we're understanding John rightly, there's an expectation, there's a duty to love as Christians, a duty to costly love of laying down our lives, um, and a love even even to the point of, of death, if it comes to that. But we should also understand that the source and the power for that love is in the love given to us, bestowed upon us. We We are, I am quickly tapped out in my natural man, with the expenditure of love. I don't have much to offer. But when we know the love of God through the laying down of the life of Christ, we are recipients and partakers of an eternal wellspring of love from which to draw and to give. So, living love is a life-giving love. And John gives us an illustration of what it might mean for us to lay down our lives for the brothers. Um, this is the second point, is that living love gives life in the great and the small. Living love gives life in the great and the small. He gives us a, a scenario here, a hypothetical but realistic, in verse 17. But if anyone has the world's good and sees his brother in need yet closes his heart against him, 
How does God's love abide in him? We just heard an argument from the greater to the lesser. I think this is an argument from the lesser to the greater. When we hear, lay down our lives for the brothers, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? Hopefully Jesus, uh, maybe somebody like Stephen, or maybe a story like like uh, Jim Elliott laid down his life, or even some of the great missionaries who didn't die, but like John Patton gave away everything for the work of Christ. These are the big things that come to mind. But John says, consider this. Suppose you have the world's goods. You have what you need, maybe even more. You're not hurting, and your fellow brother in Christ comes to you with a material need, and you have the capacity to meet it. And instead of helping him, you slam the door of your heart in his face. Does that sound like someone who's come to know love in an experiential way, through the laying down of Christ for him? Or does that sound like someone in whom God's love abides? I think we see what he's getting at here. Never mind for a moment to the big romantic sacrifices. If a person will not sacrifice in the small things, the most basic of ways, is there any confidence that he will give up his life in the big things? And this is why John reminds us that talk is cheap in verse 18. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, how easy it is to fall in love with loving instead of actually loving. We do. We can get caught up in the romanticism of radical love and swept away by extraordinary acts that we read about in biographies, but when, when it comes down to laying down our lives for our closest neighbors, our brothers and sisters in Christ, in the most basic of ways, like, like giving up the resources that we have, even in, in many cases that we have in abundance, or giving up of our time or our comfort to help somebody out, how quickly we can slam the door of our heart against them. The word that's translated heart here, I've always enjoyed this, this Greek word, is splanknon. It's a funny word. It literally means guts or or bowels. Um, It actually is closely related etymologically to our word spleen. Um, So it's it's our insides. It's blank on. It's a fun word. Figuratively, though, it's, it's the inner man. It's the seat of our emotions, our affections. So when we close our heart, our splank non against our, our brother, then it means we don't care. We've closed off our empathy toward them. We don't feel for the other person. This is important because on the one hand, the Bible calls us to actionable love, like in this passage, but in other passages, it requires a heart posture that goes with it. Like 1 Corinthians 13, if I have, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, if I do all these things, if I give my body to be burned, but have not love, I have nothing. So we must have both the inside and the outside. Ultimately, we're talking here about the difference between love of self, by which we preserve our own life, and life's good for ourselves, 
and the love of others, laying down our lives. As Paul says, we are to count others as more significant than ourselves. Calvin has a a great little book. It's called The Little Book on the Christian Life. Ligonier published a new new publication of it recently, a couple years ago. Really helpful. In chapter 2, called Self-Denial in the Christian Life, Calvin says this, We will meet many difficulties as we try to dutifully seek the good of our neighbors. We won't make any headway in this regard unless we lay aside concern for ourselves. Indeed, unless we somehow lay aside our very self. For how, unless we forsake ourselves and commit ourselves wholly to others, can we bring forth those works that Paul identifies as love? Love, he says, is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. And that's a tough one, isn't it? Insist on its own way. It is not irritable, and so on. That single command that we not insist on our own way With what force must we resist our own nature to pursue it? Our very nature inclines us toward self-love. As a result, we don't easily deny ourselves or our desires in order to seek the good of others. Even less are we willing to give up our right to something and give that right to another. It's hard, isn't it? I feel the weight of this exhortation because I know exactly what what John the Apostle and John Calvin are talking about here. I know what it feels like experientially to close my heart against the brother in need. I'm not doing that. Let somebody else do it. (laughs) Maybe if they showed a little reciprocation, but maybe, but not now. It's a struggle to love, to lay down one's life. It's extremely painful to lay down your life because it's dying. Dying to self. Dying hurts. It grates against our flesh. I think this is what Paul means when he says to the Philippians that he is being poured out on the sacrificial offering of their faith. What is it to be poured out for someone else? Or he also says, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death, For Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So, death is at work in us, but life in you. This is what Paul experienced in the ministry of the gospel, is dying daily to self with Christ for the sake of those he ministered to. So, living, living love gives life in the great and the small. It begins with the small, with the basic things of giving of our time and our resources and our energy for others. It is the costliness, the difficulty of love, and honestly, 
the sure, sheer impossibility of this kind of love from a human perspective that makes love such a, a useful metric in making our calling and electric, ele- election sure. That leads us to our third point, that living, this is a bit of a mouthful, living love lives in the living loved. Living love is only in those who have been loved, who have received love. Living love lives in the living loved. We can, I think, be like Thomas, who at one point in Jesus' ministry, um, when his disciples were concerned that if Jesus went to Jerusalem, he would be killed. And, and, and do you remember what Thomas said? Let us go and die with him. We remember him for being doubting Thomas. But he, he said, let us go and die with him. I have zeal for Jesus. Or we can be like Peter, who said, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away, even if I'm, I must die with you. And all of the, when the moment came, all of the disciples scattered. The same with us. We can be sitting here, maybe listening to a sermon like this, resolve in our hearts, man, John's right, I get it, Jesus died for me, I'm going to resolve the rest of my life to just lay down my life for other people. Then we go home or we get in the car with our closest brother or sister, our husband or wife, they do something that irritates us, and it's like smoke in the breeze. Our resolve is gone in an instant. I do want to challenge you. Don't, don't love in word or talk only. Don't just be inspired in the moment, but love in deed and in truth, in action. You cannot resolve once in the quiet of your morning devotion reading of a great biography Rather, we must learn to rest in the boundless love of Christ that we have come to know moment by moment, day by day, letting that boundless fountain of love work in us, those things that are so difficult and that we can't do on our own. Patience, kindness, contentment, humility, gentleness, purity, forgiveness, all these things that come from Christ. Notice also how he addresses these people in verse 18. He says, little children. Little children. And he says, let us love in word, not in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. It's comforting to know, it's comforting to me to know that John issued this exhortation to little children, to people he believes to be Christians already. And in fact, the, the imperative here is, is hortatory in nature. It, it, it includes himself. Let us. We, we need to love, not in deed or in word only, but in deed. Let us. So the very fact that he urges him using this, this language suggests that neither they nor we have arrived in this process. And yet, we're called little children. Growing in love and our capacity to lay down our lives is a process, a lifelong process. That's encouraging because if I had to arrive to, to be a child of God, 
I'm not a child of God. So look into your own life. Are you giving up of yourself? Of your goods, of your sustenance, your time and energy from from a heart, from the bowels of your empathy and care for the people of God, even in small ways? Or are you aloof from the people of God, distancing yourself from the people of God, bitter, angry toward the brothers, impatient, irritated, unforgiving toward them? I don't, I don't concern, I'm not concerned for the salvation of those who struggle to love. But I'm, I'm deeply concerned for those who are distancing themselves from the brethren out of bitterness toward them. This is exactly what I think those who departed from the faith did in 1st John. So living love lives in the living loved. If you have come to know the love of God in a personal, experiential way through the knowledge that Jesus has laid down his life for you, if if God's love is abiding in you, if you've been born again, you will see changes in yourself over time. Where the people of God become more and more, warts and all, a love to you. And you want to give your life that they might have an increasing vibrancy of life. Did you know that First John was uh, one of my seminary projects? I had to translate it and comment, co- comment on it and teach through it. And I taught through it to a, a class of three teenagers in a Sunday school class, one of whom was my brother. In one class, we discussed this idea of the nature of love being self-sacrificial, as described in First John. Later that week, we were at my parents' house, and we were all in the base basement watching football or something, and I go upstairs to find my brother washing the dishes all by himself. Teenage unit, that's probably not normal. Um, I can't remember if we discussed it or not, but as a teacher, always longing to see some fruit of the Bible teaching, I'm optimistic that he was drawing on this this idea of love as self-sacrifice. Taking a simple act as a self-conscious effort to lay down his life for others. And I think that's what we're talking about here, maybe God will grant one day that we can do something as great as, as some of these great missionaries we read about. You don't have to be John Patton before you can call yourself a real Christian. Just keep plodding day by day, undertaking the simple, everyday painful acts of laying down your life in love. Knowing the joy uh, of doing just a little bit of what Jesus has done for you. Amen.